I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. The views expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily the views of domestic and sexual abuse services. Welcome once again to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. This is Claudia Pauls, and I am privileged today to have Deborah Davis with us. She is an assistant prosecuting attorney in St. Joe County, and welcome, Deb. We are so happy you're able to join us. Well, thank you for having me. And this being October, which is, of course, Domestic Assault Awareness Month, um, part of those um, activities that go on, as part of those activities that go on in this month, we do have a, a vigil, an, an, an annual vigil, where... Uh, we do remember all of those who have been victims and, and those who have died as a result of domestic violence. Um, and Deborah was there at our vigil and uh, vigil and able to um, be a supporter in that way. But she is a supporter of DASIS, and we're looking to highlight all the different ways that um, many people support us, but today, Deborah in, in particular. So welcome, and let us... Um, Kind of start with if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and and how being a part of the um, prosecuting attorney's office has allowed you to participate in a lot of the things you do. Sure. Well, I'm from St. Joseph County originally, uh, born and raised here from Centerville. Uh, my husband and I now live in Colin with our children, and uh, I did private practice as an attorney for about 13 years. And then, of course, the pandemic happened, and mm-hmm. kind of everything changes, right? Uh, I had the opportunity to go work as just a part-time special prosecutor uh with Josh Robert, who at the time was the chief assistant in June of 2020. And basically, I was there to kind of clean up the felony docket. It had been backed up pretty bad uh, from the uh, closure of, of the courts. And so when I first came in, I was really just doing the felony cases. But there were a few that were significant domestic violence situations Um very horrific things. Now, for 13 years, I had you know done different cases, but on the other side, and uh-huh. it certainly um, those are very tough emotionally for a, an attorney Absolutely. to do. But uh, being now on the prosecutorial side, uh, being able to to speak with the victims, to use the empathy and sympathy that is, uh, you know I just have uh, as part of my being. Uh, it's been amazing to uh, to help empower uh, these these people that are victimized and help them understand the legal process because it's not always easy to understand why the cases 
go the way that they go and the decisions that we have to make. So having, um, you know, the ability to connect with them and explain to them what's going on and, and keep them informed, I think is, is super important. So that's kind of been my focus, I guess. Um, Dave Marvin was elected and took office as the uh, head prosecutor in January of 2021. And since then, uh, I decided that I really did like doing this. I really surprised him, I think. And um, it surprised my husband, I think, too, <laughs> when I was like, hey, by the way, I think I'm going to do this. Uh, so we were able to um, negotiate with the, the county uh, commission. And thankfully, they saw the value of having an experienced attorney um, brought on and, and staying on. So Dave has really uh, had me focus on domestic violence and the, the criminal sexual assault cases. Uh, again, not something I want to I want to specialize in necessarily, right. but uh, when the call is there, the call is there. So that's kind of what, what my role is there now. And being able to um, see how an organization like DASIS works not just and and obviously the support of of law enforcement of the courts of all of that is a huge part of what they're able to do to begin to provide services for survivors but from the prosecuting attorney's point of view and your point of view in particular being able to work with these organizations and see kind of from from intake to survivor to you know throughout the healing process that has to be a an amazing and interesting opportunity for you as well as being able to support DASIS. It, it truly is. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that these services are out there, that they don't have to pay for them. Uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of accepting the help. And mm -hmm. I think that's where people struggle. Um, a lot of people don't want to admit that that the situation has gotten as bad as it is or uh, they're embarrassed about it or they just uh, don't think that they have the strength to do anything different and you know law enforcement is required to give them you know the domestic assault information mm -hmm. and it, it becomes routine but i i wish that more people would use that service just make that first phone call make that first connection because once once you you get into that uh the DASIS workers are so kind and helpful and understanding and I, I just wish that more victims and survivors would would let them into their lives uh, because it, they have so many services that they can offer well and, and realizing that you don't have to do this yourself Right. That there is help and that then these folks are, are along with everything you said, they're so smart and so trained and so knowledgeable in all the different um, methods that they can help you with and and to to bring you through these situations out to the other side. And I really would like to see more of the success stories circling back and being advocates mm -hmm. uh there's something to be said about someone being able to connect with an advocate that has been where they're at, not just necessarily from the books and the training and that sort of thing, but actually having stood in their shoes and th they can tell them, look, I know it's really hard right now, but give it five days, 10 days, 15 days, 50 days, a year, 
your life is going to be so much better. Your kids' lives are going to be so much better. We just have to get you through these these difficult times. And that's where that safety net of these advocates are there to, to call them, to get them safe housing. You know, a lot of it is an, an economic issue. Mm-hmm. Now, that's I'm not saying part. that... Um, like I said in, in my speech the other day, domestic violence doesn't care about your economic status, right? It's from the, the wealthy to the poor. It doesn't matter. But in either of those situations, money is often used as a tool of control. And whether your spouse makes $100,000 or $15,000, if your spouse is the one controlling that money or controlling the money that you make, uh, it's overwhelming to try to think of what, how am I going to even survive? Where am I going to lay my head tonight if I leave here? Where are my children going to go? I don't want to switch schools. All of those questions uh, that that they don't have an answer to. And sometimes if they just had that connection where someone could help them make a safety plan and then execute that safety plan, uh, they just again, need to accept that help and, and reach out. Mm-hmm. And realizing, well, especially being a prosecuting attorney, when they begin to reach out for help or whether it's because of law enforcement intervention or how they ended up with the system, but the system for lack of a better word, right? but to have someone like you who is there to help them Um, I'm sure realizing that, you know, sometimes you hear just the term prosecuting attorney. It's kind of a scary term. It is. I mean, helpful side and being able to guide them through this process. Right. And our victim advocate office, uh, Marissa Countryman, is amazing. She is uh, truly an advocate for the victims. And uh, it's sad to see how many people don't respond to the initial uh, reaching out. Now, that being said, sometimes it's because we don't have a good phone number for them. Maybe their spouse controls their phone. Uh, You know, we don't have an address for them because now they're not living at the home that they were. So we try really hard to find some way to keep in connection with them. Uh, Email, I mean, you can kind of get email on anybody's device. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've been kind of kicking around the idea of making sure that people that are in this situation, maybe we help them set up a new email that their spouse doesn't have access to, that doesn't know about. Uh, Because if they've had their same email since they're 13 years old, like I have mine, uh, you know, uh, the the odds are that that abuser may know your secret questions Mm -hmm. and and change things and access Mm -hmm. things. So, you know, some of those, I guess, tips and tricks, for lack of a better way to say it, a way that we can still find them wherever they might be. One of the worst parts of domestic violence and, and criminal sexual conduct cases is they take so long sometimes with the court process and with COVID and closures and all that. It's been even worse. We're at the point now where some of the cases are coming up and, and we want to take them to trial. We're ready, but we can't find our victim. Oh. And the transient nature of the it just, it's heartbreaking when the victim has cooperated. They maybe did the preliminary exam. We have a transcript of their testimony and now we can't find them. So if we could keep in touch with them, again, through email or or cell phones or or whatever, uh, it would be so much more helpful. Um, So just one of those things that And that's kind of another thing with the 
pandemic enclosures, things that would normally not take this long and you wouldn't have to drag it out like this are now. Well, and even even so, I mean, your typical case, if it's going to trial, if it's a felony, it, it could take mm-hmm. a solid year. And it's it's difficult because you don't want you don't want to drag it out. It's not fair to the victim and it's just something that we we can't avoid in most situations so we try to keep them informed uh, so that they're in the loop that they know that we haven't forgotten about them Um, but it's just one of the unfortunate realities of the legal system and how often I mean not how often necessarily but those victims Know, knowing you before they would have to go to court. You are able to, to talk with them, to, to reassure them, to let them know what the process is going to be, and for them to be able to see you once they get there? That yeah. That would be very comforting, I would think. It, it, it definitely helpful. does help. Um, once I started doing this in June, I mean, back in June of 2020, everything was virtual. So you, we got to know how to use Zoom pretty pretty mm-hmm. quick. So I was able to typically successfully set up Zoom consults so that I could have Marissa and sometimes the law enforcement officer there because they have met with these victims and talked to people. And it was really effective, definitely you know, there there were a few cases. Uh, obviously, can't speak about specifics, but mm-hmm. um, there was there was a case where the girl had uh, I called her the night before the preliminary exam, which is basically like a mini trial. It's at the very beginning of a felony. It's a, a hearing where I have to present as a prosecutor enough evidence to the judge to show that a felony might have been committed by probable cause and that this person is the person uh, who uh, did it. So that's hard because you've got to have a, a victim, A, cooperate and tell their very traumatic story. Right. B, they have to point out uh, what this person <clears throat> looks like, what they're wearing. Uh, you know, you're not in the same courtroom anymore, but it's still difficult even when you're in a virtual courtroom so uh, this um, young woman had had been severely um, strangled and I called her the night before and she was like well I just I just really don't I don't think I want to do this I don't you know I just you know back and forth I said you know I really I need to see you need to look in my eyes and I need to look in your eyes so I need you to log in tomorrow and we'll do a zoom before court but I need to see you I need to you know I can't just talk to you over the phone over this Mm -hmm. and the next day she logged in and um, she was by herself and she admitted that her abuser was sitting in the car with her the night before when she was talking to me and she only said that because he was telling her to say that and it just hit me and it's like we just don't know what's going on when that camera clicks off or that phone shuts off they have to deal with whatever is out there and when the accused is on bond which with bond reform uh, from our state it is much more common for people even with felonies to be granted a personal recognizance bond PR bond for short and so we have a lot more people. Yes, they're innocent until proven guilty. You know, that's the cornerstone of our criminal law system. However, when they 
use their relationship to intimidate or to influence, it's really frustrating to me. And I, I work very hard to bring that to light and deal with it through the court system. The judges take it seriously when we find out about it. But I, I, I shudder to think how many times I don't find out about right. it. And the case just it gets done and, um, you know, the people go on about their lives. I just, if they, if our victims won't tell me or anyone, we can't help them. And that's, that's a very frustrating part of the job. Um, I imagine an organization like DASIS being able to step in and help with that, especially if they know that the potential witness, the, the victim is being intimidated or still abused or still under that person's control has to be a great asset. It is extremely helpful. Uh, I can tell you for years, I mean, prior to, to me coming to the prosecutor's office, I remember DASIS advocates being at court in person mm -hmm. with the victims. And I always thought that was a really incredibly helpful service to them to think of being the victim of a crime uh, that was committed by somebody that, that you know, that you loved at one point, that maybe you still feel that you love, mm -hmm. to have to walk into that court building alone and figure out where to sit and, and who to sit by and to have them in that same room maybe staring at you or blowing you kisses or, you know, whatever. It, I, I can't imagine someone having to do that by themselves. Right, terrifying. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. So having DASIS uh, have an advocate to just physically be there with the person is incredibly helpful. And it's one of the things that I, when we go back to in-person court, I really hope that, that we can have enough people uh, to help and, and do that for these these individuals. Right. Yes. And, and DASIS therapists have, have talked on our show or in the podcast many, many, many times about walking alongside a survivor until they are able to walk by themselves. And it's not, we're going to fix this for you, but we're going to be beside you as you begin to fix and to heal all of these situations for yourself. Um, I am certain that court appearance is a huge step in the healing process for these victims and survivors. It, it is, uh, but sometimes I think it also reopens wounds, and oh, yeah. mm -hmm. some of the more difficult cases are ones that uh, maybe didn't get put through the system for whatever reason, and it's months later by the time it comes to me for review, and now I, well, I have to make a decision whether we issue the charges, and so thinking back again to the police left the uh, the complaint was made and they wrote it down and they left and that person now is is alone left to deal with the ramifications of when that spouse gets out of jail in a day uh, or maybe two or if they didn't get arrested at the time they just want somewhere to cool off and the police are going to submit this as what we call a warrant request and then I, as a prosecutor, get it maybe weeks later, maybe months later, depending. Uh, now what do we do with that mm -hmm. case? You know, a lot of times we try to reach out to that complaining witness, the victim, and say, look, this just came to our office now. I see it happened two months ago. Is it going to cause more trouble for you by 
authorizing this? Is CPS involved? Have you guys been going to marital counseling? And I think fortunately, uh, some cases don't get authorized. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a situation where it, it was appropriate for police to be called, that it was inappropriate behavior, but with interventions of either DASIS or private therapy or sometimes uh, religious help, they have been able to uh, fix the situation. That's not every case, though, and it's really hard to differentiate between Mm -hmm. those. Um, But it is something where having those advocates, again, law enforcement giving that information the day that they are there, I just hope that people use that and call Mm -hmm. and, and, and get someone to be there with them. And we are so lucky in our area to have you in that office being able to look at that whole situation and willing to take those extra steps to contact the victim is this going to be better or worse and how to for them to also have a voice into how things proceed that's huge thank you so much (laughs) i mean it seems to me it seems so simple it seems like common sense but i guess it's it's not really been done that way i just it's one of those things where you try to not re-traumatize people. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine being the person waiting to hear for months and then all of a sudden, boom, there's an arrest warrant for your spouse. And, uh, oh, what's going to happen now? Um, you know, just the, the fallout from that, it's really scary to me is it going to create a new domestic violence situation when that spouse finds out that they have an arrest warrant because of something you said um it's it's tough um but again we like to be proactive rather than reactive right like get in the home get cps helping if there's a situation that where there's kids in the home and there's Uh, you know, the beginnings of domestic violence, not that any domestic violence is is better than the other. I don't mean to say it that way, but before it escalates into uncontrollable uh, violence, uh, there are usually some warning signs that, again, we're going back to the proactive part of our teachers getting involved, Mm -hmm. our law enforcement getting involved, our counselors for these kids. And putting those safeguards in place and making it okay for these kids to tell us what's happening in their house so that we can help before it gets to the point of mom or dad getting arrested and and going to jail. Right, which is kind of the the basis of this podcast. I'm not in an abusive relationship. And so much, you know, denial and things that could go on early on in these relationships if help and law enforcement and education and all of the parties can come together and not, you know, punish, but educate and help and bring people through this before it escalates. And escalate is the perfect word to use. So, Well, and I don't, I don't want people to take it as if, if their spouse is displaying these signs that all hope is lost, they're never going to be a better person. Because I don't believe that that's true. Mm-hmm. I, and that's the whole purpose, I suppose, of having 
the statute that allows a first-time domestic violence um, conviction to be set aside without having to go through, like, the um, set-aside process where you have to wait five years mm-hmm. after, you know, whatever. It's an automatic set-aside if they complete uh, this deferral probation. And the anger management class or the longer uh, domestic violence class, it, that's why we have these. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, you just you just come down hard on on the defendants and it's like no i truly want to see the defendant do better i want them to be a better parent a better spouse a better uh, significant other and if that means that you know our office we have to be the bad guy and take them to task and hold them accountable for what they did and show them that that behavior is not acceptable then so be it. I'd I'd be the bad guy every day if I thought that it was going to fix some of these relationships and give these children that are in these relationships the the opportunity to to have a household where there's not anger and violence and that these parents are going to be able to work it out and show the kids that people can change for the better. And, you know, that's those are the the success stories that I'd rather see than just the success story of somebody getting out of a relationship. Because if we don't fix, I guess, again, for lack of a better term, fix that defendant Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. get them to deal with whatever is going on in their life that, that causes them to need to have this power and control over their spouse. If, if we just remove that, that one victim they got a next victim down right. the line and exactly. then the next right. one down the line. Mm-hmm. So again, that proactive versus reactive, we got to get in that defendant's head, get them the counseling or the treatment that they need. And a lot of times it is co-occurring with some sort of substance abuse um, or mental uh, disorder that, that is there. And if we can get involved and, mm-hmm. and get them on the right path, they can be a successful spouse to someone and a successful parent maybe it's a toxic relationship between the victim and the defendant and they need to to separate and and be separate but co-parenting but again i just i don't want people to think that there's no hope and i'm just coming down hard on on these defendants i I truly do want them to be better people and we do what we can to to facilitate that well and the realization that you believe that the perpetrator is not just the sum of what's going on, but that they are a person with many good qualities as well as what they're dealing with and that they can overcome is a great place to work from. Right. Right. I mean, it's, there, there are certainly triggers. There are certainly toxic relationships. There are personality styles that are just never going to mesh with each other. And no matter how hard you try, it's not going to work and it's going to result in some form of domestic violence and for us to be able to basically interject our office Mm -hmm. into them through the the court system and show them that even for the defendant sometimes it's like look give it five days 10 days 50 days a year your life is going to be better too i know it's hard to accept that right now but just as much as that that victim needs to heal and move on you defendant need to heal and move on um you know that you're not an innately evil person uh obviously with 
most domestic violence, I mean, they started out loving each other, liking each other. You know, there are good Mm -hmm. qualities. And that's where that that turmoil comes for victims, though, is they uh, this is the person they love. And again, as the time passes while we're waiting for the warrant request to come through and then they get arrested and then there's a no contact order and then we have to wait for the pretrial and then the trial. And by the time you get to trial, it may be like, wow, I, the, the, the good outweighs the bad mm-hmm. and the negative consequences of that victim cooperating with our office out, outweigh mm-hmm. for them personally what we feel is the right thing um, to go forward with because that person committed this crime on that date. And I can prove it. I've got my my legal mind is saying we've got the elements, we've got everything, uh, let's do this. But we have to then, I step back and look at what is the, the consequence to this victim. And we then reevaluate what we do with the case at that point. So the outcome and the goals yeah. supporting the victim. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are times where we drag that victim unwillingly across the finish line and say, I know you don't want to do this, but for the good of society, for the, the good of the next person down the line that is going to be standing in your shoes, if I don't do something with this defendant, I have to I have to put you on the stand and you're going to say what you're going to say, but that officer is going to get up there and we have, you know, exceptions to hearsay that that officer is going to say, this is what you told me on mm-hmm. this day. And I'm mm-hmm. going to play that 911 tape and I'm going to play that body cam of the officer. And it's going to be painful and it's not going to be pleasant, but we have a, an obligation to protect society mm-hmm. and those are tough too. Yes, absolutely. But then those victims also know that you are there with them and therapists and volunteers and advocates from DASIS. All of the help that can be provided will be provided. We are extremely fortunate in our county to have, for, for, for being such a small in number county, we have a lot of resources and high quality resources for people. And it's just a matter of them accepting the help and us getting the word out to them. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been enlightening. I have not realized the the encompassing um, opportunities that that the prosecutor's office is taking advantage of. And and we're so pleased that you decided to join them. So that was wonderful. And I I really appreciate the opportunity. I, you know, to be an advocate to the extent that that I can, um, I I try to take that opportunity because it is so important. And uh, it's just one of those things that you got to do the the best that you can where you're at right Mm -hmm. now. And if each of us try to do that, it makes our county a much better place to be. It certainly does. Thank you once again. And for those of you listening, if you uh, would like to reach out to DASIS and and join our supporters or get some support yourself, our 800 number is 1-800-828-2023. And we're always there and always online at dasismi.org. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasismi.org or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. 
social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan. The views expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services.